Welcome to the Security Sessions podcast, brought to you by Talis and hosted by me, Nera Jones. In this podcast series, we'll be discussing the technologies, people, and processes behind information security and delving into topics like data security, remote access, and digital transformation. We'll be speaking to Talis and industry experts to bring you fresh perspectives on how to navigate the world of cloud security. Today's episode, we'll be talking about the rise of cyber insurance. As more businesses become more digital, the number and type cyber risks to which they are exposed inevitably increases. As it becomes more a matter of when and not if an attack occurs, cyber insurance becomes a crucial risk mitigation tool for ensuring business continuity and mitigating the business impact of attacks. Cyber risk insurance can cover the costs of recovering from a security breach, a virus or a cyber attack, and could also cover ensuing legal claims. So we'll discuss all of this today, and I have two fantastic guests with me today. Dana Bethlehem, Product Marketing Director, IAM Solutions at Talis, and Anthony D'Agostino, CEO and Founder at Converge. Welcome, Dana and Anthony. Would you like to say a few words starting with you, Dana? Hi, Nira. So happy to be here. And this is such a relevant topic. I'm getting more and more questions about the role of multi-factor authentication as one of those mitigating factors within cyber insurance. So very much looking forward to, hear, to hearing Anthony's expertise on this matter and learning more about it. And you, Anthony, welcome. Thank you very much, Nira and Dana. Really look forward to this and big thanks to Talis for the opportunity and, and completely agree with Dana. This is a uh, very timely topic and, and multi-factor authentication and insurances is absolutely at a, uh, a crucial point on uh, working together. So I look forward to this conversation. Thanks again. Likewise, thank you both. Well, let's go to the crux of the matter. What do we actually mean by cyber insurance and what are we, why are we seeing more companies take out cyber ins insurance, Anthony? Yeah, sure. So cyber insurance has been around for uh, probably about 20 years, actually a little more than 20 years now. Um, now, ultimately, cyber insurance is a financial loss insurance coverage for security and, and privacy incidents. Uh, it typically does not cover the physical damage like a property insurance would or, or like a casualty insurance would. Um, but what it covers is financial loss for having an incident and cleanup costs and liability arising out of it. Um, and like I said, it, it's been around for over 20 years and it was originally designed to cover data breaches as a result of U.S. regulations. That's how it was really first born. You saw a number of state notification requirements in the U.S., Uh, and because of that, there were burden on companies to notify and provide credit monitoring. So insurance was born out of that. And then as privacy regulation grew globally and companies grew across the globe and more and more incidents happened, we really saw the cyber insurance landscape grow. Now, over the past couple years, cyber insurance has been really forefront because, number one, the number of claims have increased. You see it in the headlines around all the ransomware attacks. But at the same time, not only has the number of claims increased, but the size, the, the magnitude of the financial impact of these claims. You see the big ransomware headlines of 20, 30. I had one client in a, in a past life. I have an $80 million, 80 million US dollar uh, ransomware attack. So now people see this and say, okay, it's real. It could happen to me. And I'm going to buy insurance to protect my balance sheet, just like they buy insurance for any other line. 
Absolutely. And indeed, I dread to think what the uh, insurance profile was for the colonial pipeline, uh, as happened last year. So um, that's indeed very interesting, given that uh, it is a mature uh, industry, but uh, it's been so prominent over the past uh, few years. So in terms of uh, the cyber insurance landscape itself, from an insurance industry point of view, uh, what does it look like? But more particularly, surely over the years, it, it has evolved because obviously uh, technology evolves and attacks evolve. So, uh, and we're now seeing more and more insur- insurers being technology savvy in terms of their underwriting. So uh, are there any key controls that the industry is now requiring? Yes, and this has been a huge turning point for the cyber insurance industry over probably the past two years. So originally it was, do you encrypt your data? Uh, Do you have a process to respond? And that was pretty much it. And so 15, 20 years ago, that's all that we asked. And then lately with all these ransomware attacks, it really caused the cyber insurance industry to wake up and say, all right, what's happening in the claims? What is the root cause? What are the indicators of compromise and what went wrong? And now we're starting to look at the cyber insurance industry, almost like the, the auto insurance industry. Um, do you, what, what are the airbags and the anti-lock brake systems that you need to have in place? So there's probably nine to 10 key controls that a company should really have to mitigate against ransomware attacks. And having these controls uh, allow you to have the best and the broadest coverage. And that includes, I mean, the top of the list is multi-factor authentication, having backups that are offline and updated uh, regularly, things like incident response plans and and network segmentation, uh, patching cadence, especially for, for CVEs, uh, and then privilege access management and identity access management controls. I mean, those are some of the, the key ones, and some are more important than others. Uh, indeed. And uh, from your point of view, Dana, I mean, now the insurance industry is requiring and sometimes mandating. Uh, we're seeing lots of threats, and obviously you're at the forefront of all of this. So uh, multi-factor authentication has uh, has been mentioned. What, are, what have you observed? Yeah, indeed. Anthony mentioned that increasingly the large cyber attacks that we've seen over the past two years have been caused by credential compromise. And what we're increasingly seeing in the the market and in, in the industry is that it's almost become a kind of business. Today, bad actors don't actually hack into organizations anymore. They simply log in with compromised credentials that have been acquired from the dark web. And the dark web market for stolen credentials is thriving and has really become very sophisticated. So the majority of data breaches in the past few years have been caused by compromised credentials. And in terms of the food chain, there is, you know, we hear a lot about ransomware attacks but ultimately, those ransomware attacks do begin with compromised credentials. So what happens is that, you know, a malicious actor will just purchase a, a compromised credential from the bad web, from the dark web, and they'll log into an organization's network. They'll start elevating privileges within that network, and ultimately, they'll deliver a malicious payload, whether that is uh, malware or ransomware. 
but it all begins with getting access into an organization's network or one of their applications. Absolutely. And in fact, then, if I recall correctly, when uh, Target was breached in the United States all the way back, I think it was 2013, the root cause of the, the breach was actually compromised credentials of the uh, HVAC supplier. <laughs> and and they were then able to move laterally in the environment and access the the the, the payment uh, infrastructure, uh, but it was almost textbook as you describe it there. So it's been happening for a, for a long time. So on that point. Point, Dana, what do you observe uh, within your customer portfolio at, at large? Is there a change of behaviors? Are organizations being more serious at, de at deploying multi-factor authentication? Yeah, it's really interesting. I can just tell you that in the past month, we've had two customers come to us in a bit of a, a tizzy, kind of under stress, uh, they had to renew their cyber insurance. So these uh, customers and these organizations already had their cyber insurance policies in place. But when they came to renew, there was this additional requirement for them to implement multi-factor authentication within their environments and in order to, to continue their coverage. So these customers were like really stressed in, in being able to get up and running with multi-factor authentication quickly and uh, implemented for all of their users in order to maintain their cyber cyber insurance coverage. So this, I, I'm hearing about this more and more frequently within our customer base, that organizations are coming to us with this need in order to get cyber insurance or in order to renew their existing policies. Wow, that's very interesting. So, so in fact, what happens if uh, controls that are required by uh, the insurer and the underwriter are not met or only partially met, Anthony? Yeah, I mean, it, uh, Dan is right. I mean, there, there's definitely this, this point where now if you don't have certain things, good luck getting coverage. Um, you might be able to find some coverage if you don't have certain controls, but your deductibles will be ultra, ultra high, you'll have very limited coverage. Um, we see some organizations unable to get ransomware coverage uh, at all. And, and a lot of times that's why they're buying the insurance is for that element of ransomware coverage. Um, so I'd say out of the, the nine or 10 controls, there's three like critical ones, um, making sure that you're patching. And, and, and in fact, some underwriters will do an outside scan uh, of a policyholder right before renewing to see if there's any open vulnerabilities on the public facing web. And, and so sometimes it's, it's accurate, sometimes it isn't. Having your incident response plan uh, in place and tested is now a critical one because when something goes wrong, companies need to react the right way. Um, that really impacts your the financial loss of, of that incident, depending on how you respond. But the biggest one that we've seen now is having multi-factor authentication. And we've seen many organizations um, unable to get coverage if they don't have multi-factor authentication in place, especially for certain organizations that hold sensitive data. Uh, it really is a critical control. It's kind of like having the sprinkler system in the factory. You just have to have it now.
Wow, that's very interesting. It's it's almost like as if the uh, insurance industry is uh, is achieving what uh, what the regulators haven't been able to in terms of uh, mandating such uh, such things. So, uh, talking about the the regulators specifically, um, uh, how does cyber insurance? Uh, work across different juris- jurisdictions? Are, are there any regional differences uh, of note, Anthony? Yeah, I mean, there definitely are. And then at first, you, you bring up a really good point. So cyber insurance, you know, we know security companies and, and SIM systems and other ones have really good data about threat intelligence and vulnerabilities and key controls. And then you look at the insurance industry, and they have the financial impact of what went wrong? What was the attack and how did it impact an organization? And that's really important information. So as much as we've been talking about um, public and private partnerships and working with regulators and private sector to, to incentivize better controls, I really do feel like we're at this point right now in cyber insurance where we've seen enough claims, we have the data, we know that you have to have key controls like multi-factor authentication, and now's a good time to, to work together and really incentivize these best practices. But when you look across the globe anymore, I mean, I talked about historically, it, it started in the US with the regulation. I mean, it's a global economy and there are privacy and security regulations across the globe. Um, I mean, obviously we have GDPR, South Korea a couple years ago put in a, a pretty um, stringent regulation. Singapore passed something a couple years ago. So we're seeing more and more stringent uh, requirements. So even if you are based in a certain country, just with e-commerce and, and the growing global economy, we do see even smaller companies crossing borders and, and selling into other countries. So number one, if you're buying a cyber insurance policy, you need to read your territory your policy should be global in scope. That's the number one thing. Number two, you really want that broad regulatory coverage. It should be blanket regulatory coverage where it's any regulatory proceeding is covered where insurable. That's really important for policyholders. Now, fines and penalties aren't always insurable in certain countries, but at least having the coverage for those countries that can insure it will really help you. And then lastly, for larger companies, sometimes there's issues with paying claims from one domiciled uh, headquarters into certain countries like Brazil, Russia, India, and China. Uh, So if you are a larger organization, you have subsidiaries operating in those BRIC countries, you really need to understand how claim payments can be facilitated. But I'd say overall, make sure you have a global policy and make sure you have broad regulatory coverage as you're doing business globally. Absolutely. These are all very good points. Um, you said something that uh, pricked my interest, which is uh, uh, in terms of uh, uh, the, the private sector organization providing security services uh, uh, and, and other means of uh, of protecting businesses uh, are, are obviously have got a lot of data. So does the insurance industry. So Dana, are you seeing uh, more private-private uh, partnerships between sort of a security organization and perhaps cyber insurance, another organization that could foster this sort of uh, threat intelligence partnerships? 
So indeed, there is um, a lot of room for collaboration within the sphere, especially regarding the types of authentication methods and you know how an organization can get up and running quickly with authentication. You might find um, partnerships in terms of insurance organizations, you know, bringing in partners, uh, security partners or security consultants. So there, there is definitely room for collaboration because one of the I think one of the issues here, and probably Anthony has more experience than this than me with this than me, but we see that many of the organizations, especially the smaller and mid-sized organizations, don't have the capacity or the expertise or the professionals on their pr- payroll who can who can provide the guidance needed for these various controls that Anthony was talking about. So the you know, security vendors like TELUS are increasingly playing a more consultative role and helping these organizations understand what they need to do in order to achieve compliance, of course, but also in order to uh, meet best practices for security uh, around encryption and around identity and access management, and in order to also uh, get cyber insurance coverage. So you see increasing linkage between all of these various aspects of security implementation and, and good practices. Oh, that's uh, that's really really good news. So uh, earlier on uh, uh, in this podcast, we were talking about uh, very briefly about ransomware attacks and uh, how these largely uh, can be prevented at the root uh, by uh, by using multi-factor authentication and all the controls you mentioned earlier on, Anthony. But uh, I was looking with with interest at uh, the news over the past few months that uh, some jurisdictions have made ransom payments illegal, uh, which affects businesses and insurers and and, and indeed the ecosystem at uh, at large. And uh, and I wanted to have your your take on that because to me, for the business, it sounds a bit like a double whammy. So how how will this potentially affect behaviours across the board? Yeah, and that's a really difficult situation that, that we see. I mean, first, we don't want the cyber insurance industry to really propagate the ransomware payments and cause this vicious cycle. Um, that's a, a big piece of this. And we, we see France and, and even in the U.S., the U.S. Treasury has put out their OFAC restrictions um, around paying certain OFAC listed uh, san- or putting uh, sanctioned entities uh, on the OFAC list. And you can't facilitate a ransomware payment if that server or that alleged group or whatever it is is on the list and you can't pay it. So we are seeing more restrictions. Now, it's unfortunately tough, and, and a prior um, role that I had on this, more of the cyber risk advisory side is I've counseled some companies in some really bad ransomware payments, and um, they were close to going out of business if they didn't have insurance. So it's a really delicate balance, but I think it goes back to you know, the, the things that, that Dana was saying around having those right controls and, and partnering better between some of the cybersecurity companies like Talus and how they utilize multi-factor authentication and the insurance industry, because I think we're at the point where you really, and this is what we're working towards at Converge, you need to show the good driver discounts. If we know that these three things are not in place and can cause a company to have a really big issue, 
how can we incentivize policyholders to ensure that they have those three things in place and incentivize through the broadest coverage and better premiums to ensure they have the right controls? And I think that's key on where we are now. Yeah, absolutely. So is that, is, is that a, a sort of an aspirational thing or, or is it happening in some way, shape or form in terms of, uh, you know, incentivizing the insurer for good behavior? I think it's happening to an extent right now. Um, we see some insurance companies offer um, stipends to put towards certain things like multi-factor authentication. Uh, at Converge, though, we, we work with a number of companies that if you have certain controls in place, you get a discount um, to prove that. And we're actually working on a couple things uh, for in the future where it'll be very transparent around, you have these controls in place, here's what your discount is. So. It's to an extent now, but I think you know we're all working through this as an industry to provide um, much, much better transparency and, and reductions uh, in risk and rewarding those who are reducing their risk. So we've been talking about uh, uh, regulations and threats and, uh, and and risk management. And Donna, you, men- you mentioned something really interesting earlier on uh, in as much as uh, uh, a, cost- a customer uh, came to you uh, uh, to implement uh, essentially multi-factor authentication because they already had uh, cyber insurance which they needed to renew uh, but they couldn't renew because there was this new control about MFA which actually brings me to uh, to the compliance landscape and uh, so because now you're starting seeing more and more customers do, doing that on the back of potentially not being able to get cover Are you seeing that perhaps it is affecting the compliance landscape in a positive way? So I think that the the compliance landscape has become much more um, active over the past two years. I mean, we've seen the executive order coming out of the US. We've seen similar guidelines coming out of the EU, Australia, the United Kingdom. And these guidelines are doing a lot to influence the landscape, the security landscape and how security controls are implemented within organizations. Having said that, there are not always concrete mandates. Some of them are obligatory, but some of them are advisory. But there's no doubt that the guidelines coming out of uh, regulatory bodies are, are having are having uh, an effect and are impacting organizations large and small. One of the things that this is causing, and perhaps it's definitely related also to the cybersecurity situation, is that organizations are faced with these guidelines and they're not really sure how to proceed. They're not really sure, you know, what kind of impl- what kind of authentication they should be implementing for what types of users or for what types of applications. Um, in the case of cybersecurity, for example, one of the key needs or drivers that we've been seeing is speed to market. And again, it's, it's related to that, that example that I mentioned earlier is that suddenly and urgently an organization needs to implement multi-factor authentication and they want to do it as quickly as possible. So there are certain ways that they can speed that up through, you know, through cloud implementations, through automated provision of authentication methods to their users. And the same actually applies in order to maintain a good regulatory compliance uh, stance because the, there will be some overlap between the two. 
And the key is really to be, be able to get up and running quickly to make sure that any authentication and access management solution that an organization chooses does fit well and integrate well with an organization's applications and also that they can get their authentication mechanisms implemented to their users rapidly and with uh, as little hassle as possible. So you want to make sure that there's kind of automated workflows, that there's a range of authentication methods out there that can suit different kinds of users. So these are things that are, you know, are affecting how organizations are looking to to implement multi-factor authentication and, and secure access within the broader guidelines of uh, the regulations and the, the market driver of cyber uh, insurance. Thank you, Diana. Very, uh, very insightful indeed. And uh, what's your take on it, Anthony? Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, that is, you know, where we want to get to, because right now, if you think about some of those aspects, how do I comply with the regulations that are relevant to me? How do I comply with vendor, supplier, or client requirements when I'm doing my vendor risk assessment uh, or getting audited by a large customer of mine or, or a supplier of mine. Plus, I'm, I'm filling out my cyber insurance application, and there's just a lot of questions and a lot of checklists and a lot of things that are pretty similar. And, and you know, one of the things that we're really looking to, to work towards is getting that crosswalk a bit better where it's, okay, I have cyber insurance. I know that I have these certain controls and that means I'm also complying with some of these regulations. And by the way, it also suffice for my vendor risk assessment that I need to fill out. Um, so just, there's a lot of effort going into creating these uh, checklists and then answering all these checklists and these requirements and these assessments. Um, but I feel like it's finally, you know, for lack of a better term, converging, and, and that's why we call it converge, convert. It's kind of converging around um, ensuring you have the best controls for the best outcomes. And whether that's confidence in your customer or your supplier that you have the right controls, confidence in your insurance company that you have the right controls, confidence for the regulators that you have the right controls. We're, we're finally getting to that point. It sounds like a very sound basis for a, for a GS, GRC model, doesn't it? Yeah, Nira, if I just, I just wanted to comment, I mean, um, Anthony was really, really describing a situation that I've been hearing more, more and more about from our customers is that they have this need in order to check, uh, check all those boxes and create that, do that kind of cross requirement analysis. They, they have an increasing need to do these security audits and really kind of map out exactly what they have within their organization and see what they what they have meets what in terms of regulation, in terms of cybersecurity, in, term, in terms of meeting security audits. All of these things really do overlap. And uh, I think it can be quite a huge effort within security teams to to achieve that. And that's also another area that I see developing. Absolutely, it, uh, it makes uh, 
total sense. So, uh, Dana, you mentioned earlier on that uh, uh, you are party to some uh, cooperation initiatives in order to help those that uh, perhaps are too small to help themselves because they just don't have the resource. And I think that uh, that is really commendable and needed because SMEs uh, generally don't don't have the the time or the skills to do these sort of things. So, uh, are there different types of uh, of insurance for different size of organizations, Anthony? There are. I mean, overall, cyber insurance is cyber insurance. So the key coverages are there. Um, but it's definitely a case of you get what you pay for, and it's really what you need. Now, a small organization might not need the robust 20 different elements of coverage that you can find on some very advanced policies. Um, so number one, it's it's what your what is your risk? If you're a small organization, how much data do you hold? And it's not always data. We talk about critical assets, and that doesn't have to be PII. That can also be if my system went down, am I going to lose income? So understanding what your risk is and making sure that you're buying coverage in line with that risk is critical. And at the end of the day, and, and it, sometimes it's a taboo subject, but it needs to be discussed. It's what's your budget? I mean, we can only spend so much as organizations on insurance and Sometimes we can't always get what we need, and, and we have to you know, come to that. So really, it's what's your risk, how much can you spend and afford, and then really make sure you get the broadest coverage. And again, if it, and I think this goes back to the whole theme of, of our discussion today, which is great, is make sure you have the key controls. Invest in what's going to give you the biggest bang for your buck, so to say. And it is having multi-factor authentication amongst a few other things. And then you can get the broadest coverage. And maybe you can buy a less amount of coverage, but you have much more broad coverage. So again, you get what you pay for. Small companies might just add a very small endorsement or rider to another existing coverage. I've worked with companies in the past that buy 700 million US dollars of, of insurance coverage uh, for cyber because they have that risk and they, they have a lot going on. So it really does depend. Uh, ab absolutely. If, if I can paraphrase what you just said, Anthony, it's basically know yourself and protect your crown jewels first. <laughs> Very well said. <laughs> so uh, uh, we could talk about this for a very, very long time, but I'm afraid we've uh, we've actually run out of time. But before I let you go, both of you, I would like to ask you for one final tip for our audience. Dana, to you. Thank you, Nira. My tip would be to organizations looking to implement MFA, really look for a solution that can offer a range of authentication methods in order to get to address all the needs of your users. Today, users are not monolithic. They have different needs depending on where they are and what they're doing within the organization, and also depending on what kinds of applications they're accessing. So it's really important to be able to, imp to, to address those different needs with different authentication mechanisms, especially since organizations looking to to get cyber insurance will likely need to implement it for all of their users. And the, the second uh, tip would really be to go for a cloud-based uh, authentication solution because that really does give you the, the, the beneficial efficiencies of cloud in being able to get up and running quickly. Thank you, Dana. And you, Anthony, what's your last tip? Yeah, my, my last tip would be to be proactive and ensure that the security teams are working with the, the insurance buyer. Sometimes that's the same person at small organizations. Sometimes they're different. Uh, but exactly to Dana's point, it's, you know, 
get in front of this, be proactive and work with your insurance broker and don't wait until the last minute because if you don't have multi-factor authentication in place and you have an insurance renewal coming up, see what really makes sense for your organization because putting that investment into MFA and getting it in place now might save you a ton of money and get you very broad coverage on your insurance. So make sure it's working hand in hand. So security and risk really needs to come together. Thank you, Anthony. And thank you, Dana, for being such fantastic guests. We could have talked for much longer. You have been listening to the Palace Security Sessions podcast. Today, we were talking about the rise of cyber insurance with my fantastic guest, Dana Bethlehem, Product Marketing Director, IAM Solutions at Thales, and Anthony D'Agostino, CEO and founder at Converge. Thank you for listening. Love this episode of the Talus Security Sessions podcast? Search us out on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast service to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Be sure to visit us at cpl.talusgroup.com to access previous episodes, bringing you insights from industry experts on the latest cloud and data security news and trends. Thank you for listening.